and something else that I knew. It really knew. It was wise rather than just knowledgeable. It was the voice inside that spoke truth. I recognized it, was one with it, and felt as if my entire life of looking to the outside world for reassurance was over. Now I need only look within to that place where I knew. Welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now podcast. I'm Jackie Dobrinska, Director of Education and Community for Love Serve Remember Foundation. And all of you, you are the Ramdas community. So thank you for being here. Thanks for tuning in. We have another great episode today. It's a classic lecture, this one from 1969. Uh, and we're breaking it into two parts. In this first part, uh, Ramdas retells his story, where he goes from Harvard professor to psychedelic explorer to finding his guru in India. And like some of you, I've heard this story before, but I think this telling of it might be the best as it has all of the details and a lot of his personal experience about what's going on. And he says it in the beginning that it's more than just a story. It's sort of a transmission. It's sort of what happens in the field beyond our intellectual knowledge. And it's that thing that awakens a deeper knowing in our own nature. And, you know, hearing another's story, it's not about making our story like theirs. He says it in this episode. He says, we can never take another person's trip. But what we can do is we can learn some of the dynamics of the methods that might help us in our own way. Um, and I think there's a lot in this episode that can help us avoid pitfalls and find really important supports for our, our own journey. And if you want more of that, if you really want to get into the details of Ramdas's story in life, the whole thing, the stuff you didn't know that you didn't know about, I highly recommend uh, being Ramdas. It really helped me feel like I knew him better. And I've heard that from lots of people. And you're lucky because it recently came out in paperback and it also came out in Spanish. So you can check that out. And you all probably know that we have lots and lots of great books, lots of Ram Dass books from Polishing the Mirror to Love Everyone to How Can I Help. Um, and if you have a younger person in your life, you might consider this new book called You Are the Universe. Um, it's a really beautiful graphic knowledge. <laughs> it's a really beautiful graphic novel. Um, and it's just talking about how do we live this thing called life the best we can. It does include his psychedelic journey. And so if you're buying it for a younger person in your life, you know, whatever age that is appropriate for, um, but you can check it out. You can find these books and lots of others wherever books are sold. You can also find them at our shop, shop.ramdas.org. Um, typically, we've been having these really wonderful discussions after uh, each of these podcasts, about a week after each of these podcasts. And about a hundred or so people come and we just dig deep into what we were learning or what inspired us. Um, I really encourage you to 
come be a part of those. Typically, the next one would be December 6th, but we're not going to be having that one because myself, as well as lots of the Love Serve Remember staff, we're going to be in Maui for the Open Your Heart in Paradise retreat. And I'm sure many of you wish that you could be there. We wish you could be there too. And so we're going to live stream portions of it. So you can sign up, be part of it virtually. Go to ramdas.org slash retreats, and then we'll all be in sacred community, at least virtually. So, yeah, with that, I hope you enjoy this podcast. It happens because there are so many people on the back end working to make it happen, including our sponsors and including people who support and donate. So thank you, everyone who does that. And whatever good that comes from these lectures and these episodes, I hope they benefit all of our daily lives and that they ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, everyone. Enjoy. Namaste and blessings. The wild geese do not intend to cast their reflection. The water has no mind to receive their image. If I could sing or play an instrument for you, I would sing and play an instrument for you. If I could dance for you, I would dance for you. If I could paint for you, I would paint for you. But my thing is words. But the problem about words is that you may listen to them. And that would be a mistake. For all I am doing is painting with words. And the message that is being sent is nonverbal. Anything you write down in a notebook to take home, to think about, forget it. For in fact, I'm not going to say anything that you don't know already. But the perplexing problem is that you don't know you know. Chung Tzu says, the fish trap exists because of the fish. Once you've gotten the fish, you can forget the trap. The rabbit snare exists because of the rabbit. Once you've gotten the rabbit, you can forget the snare. Words exist because of meaning. Once you've gotten the meaning, you can forget the words. Where can I find a man who has forgotten words so I can have a word with him? You don't have to try. You don't even have to listen. We just have to be together. And it'll all happen. It will all happen. Now, what I've just said thus far is almost heresy. For in a very uh, obvious manner of speaking, especially since this is named after Dr. Hebb, whose research was in the human brain. We are in a temple dedicated to the worship of the rational mind. Even though God said, thou shalt take no other God but me, we did it anyway. And professors are the high priests. And here in this temple, I am saying to you that what you are seeking that is bringing you here this evening, you will not find through your rational thought processes. It's as simple as that. 
St. John of the Cross said, all that the imagination can imagine and the reason can conceive and understand in this life is not and cannot be a proximate means of union with God. Just won't make it. Hafiz, the poet, said, O thou who are trying to learn the marvel of love from the copybook of reason, I am very much afraid you will never really see the point. The marvel of love from the copybook of reason. We are sharing a journey at this point. What draws us together is that for the most part, we are Westerners who have experienced a set of shared experiences and who are at this point asking of themselves and that which is around them some shared questions. And it's only at the point that you ask the question that you can hear the answer. It is only at the point when it begins to dawn on you that maybe all of the methods you had available to you thus far aren't going to be enough. All we can do at this point is to share our journeys with one another. I certainly, in no even minute sense, come before you to uh, proselytize, because the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, he that teaches those that do not want to hear is performing an immoral act. And besides, they can't hear it anyway. So it's only when, in Sanskrit, they call it virag, when there is a certain amount of feeling of the falling away of worldliness, of the pull of certain things, that you're ready to hear another message. And I'm going to share with you my own experiences thus far in my journey, briefly, and try to explore some of the implications of them. As I say, the likelihood that anybody in this room will ever go my trip, wear a dress and grow a beard and... Uh, uh, become sexually continent and live in the Himalayas. That's just a trip. It's a groovy trip, but it's a trip, and it's unique to the fact that that's suitable for me at this moment. Each pilgrim on the path has to find his own way. However, all paths lead to the same place. And therefore, by hearing of other people's journeys, you can get clear as to where it is you're going, and you can get some of the dynamics of method comparatively, perhaps. My story is a story of three chapters. The first chapter I can tell most briefly at this point in my life, it used to be the longest chapter. The second chapter is a little longer, and the third chapter is perhaps the pertinent one for the evening. Chapter one, um, I trained to be a social psychologist in the field of child development and personality theory. I got my PhD from Stanford, and I was a professor at Harvard. I taught at Cal and Stanford and Harvard. I came from a middle-class, upwardly mobile family. And I got my PhD primarily out of fear. And I knew when I took my doctoral exams that I didn't know, but I was very charming. And when I got to Harvard, I assumed that now that I was in one of the inner temples, I would know. And I taught hip courses. I taught Freud and human motivation, clinical pathology. 
And I went to the first faculty meeting, and it, they had high tea at 3.30. <laughs> and it was very much like being in the Virginia Assembly at the, uh, one of the historical landmarks in the United States. Even if they were talking about the hours that Radcliffe women had to be in bed, it all sounded like a high oratory out of the Greek amphitheater. And I was very awed by it, but as the time went on, I was there for five years, I began to see that um, we didn't know enough. Down the hall from me, in one direction was Eric Erickson, another was Dave Reisman, Jerry Bruner of Cognitive Psychology, some of the people who were social scientists who supposedly knew. But it stood to reason that if we all knew, we should really be grooving. And we weren't. Life just wasn't beautiful enough. Everybody was talking about the rat race, looking drawn out in a highly competitive field. And what bothered me was I knew I didn't know. But if you look in other people's eyes to get the image of who you are, it's pretty good. And everybody kept saying, well, he's a Harvard professor, so he knows. And my mother was proud of me. <laughs> and I had collected all of the symbols of success in society or at least a large number. I had a Cessna airplane, and a Mercedes-Benz, and a Triumph motorcycle, and a bachelor apartment full of antiques, and I had groovy dinner parties with bouillabaisse and white wine. And I went skin diving in Nassau, and, you know, and I sat on important committees. But every now and then, just before I'd be going to sleep, or when I'd be in the bathtub or something, that'd be that moment when there wasn't somebody else's eyes to look into to tell me how wonderful I was. And I knew that it wasn't enough. It didn't make it. And tenure was being dangled before my nose if I merely got my, quote, publications in order. And I thought, well, I have 40 more years of this. And I think it is most likely that I would have gone along at that pace, just collecting more and more badges. But down the hall from me, I was a big empire builder. I had 40 research assistants and um, two secretaries and four offices at Harvard, and I was in four different departments. And um, down the hall from me, in a little closet-like room that didn't have any secretaries and nothing going, sat a man, and we became drinking buddies, and his name was Timothy Leary. <coughs> And one evening, we talked about Mexico, and he said he was going to be in Mexico the next summer and invited me to visit with him. And in a drunken moment, I said, well, why don't we fly across the north of South America because I'm a pilot? And he said, that's a great idea. So we made a plan, and I neglected to tell him that all I had was my student license. <laughs> but I worked hard all spring, and I got my license the day before I left for Mexico. And it was a hair-raising trip, and I arrived at the Cuernavaca, where Timothy was, and he had just ingested these mushrooms, which are called Tiananoctal, or flesh of the gods. And he said he had seen more in nine hours than he had learned in all his years as a psychologist. And there weren't any more mushrooms around. <laughs> so we didn't go to South America. We hung out and talked about the mushrooms. And then we went back to the United States, and I was away. I was teaching at Cal as a visiting professor. And when I got back in the spring, one night on the night of a large snowstorm, I was invited over to Timothy's house. I was visiting my parents in this suburb near Timothy, about a few blocks away. 
and I walked a few blocks to uh, ingest psilocybin, the synthetic of the Mexican mushrooms. And after a kind of a melodramatic social scene in the kitchen over whether the dog was going to die, <laughs> it's that peculiar situation you get into when you've taken a psychedelic because the dog had been out running in the snow and was panting. And the question was, was he panting naturally or not? And how would we know? <laughs> but Tim's young son, 11 years old, came down and set us straight. <laughs> And then I went off into the living room by myself. And this is the report of that uh, few moments at that point. But now, a few hours later, I had gone off by myself to reflect upon these new feelings and senses. A deep calm pervaded my being. The rug crawled and the pictures smiled, all of which delighted me. Then I saw a figure standing about eight feet away where a moment before there had been no one. I peered into the semi-darkness and recognized none other than myself, in cap and gown and hood as a professor. It was as if that part of me, which was Harvard professor, had separated or dissociated itself from me. Well, I thought, I worked hard to get that status, but I don't really need it. So it's over there and I'm over here, so I'll give it up. I won't get frightened. Okay. Again, I settled back into the cushions, but at that moment, the figure changed. Again, I looked, leaned forward, straining to see. Ah, me again. But now it was that aspect of me which was the social cosmopolite. Okay, so that goes too, I thought. Again and again, the figure changed, and I recognized over there all the different aspects I knew to be me. Cellist, pilot, etc. With each new presentation, I again and again reassured myself that I didn't need that anyway. Then I saw the figure over there become that in me which was Richard Alpert-ness. That is, the basic social identity by which I had always acknowledged my existence. Sweat broke out on my forehead. I wasn't at all sure I could do, be, do without being Richard Alpert. Did that mean I'd have amnesia? Was that what this drug that this madman had given me was going to do? Would it be permanent? Should I call Tim? What the hell? I'll give up being Richard Alfred. I can always get a new social identity. At least I have my body. But I spoke too soon. As I looked down at my body for reassurance, I could see nothing below the kneecaps. And slowly, now to my horror, with my eyes wide open, I saw the progressive disappearance of limbs and then torso, until all there was was the couch on which I had sat. This is usually known as a bad trip report. <laughs> a scream formed in my throat. I felt that I was dying, since there was nothing in my universe that led me to believe in life after leaving the body. Doing without professorness or loverness or even Richard Albertness was okay, but I certainly needed the body. Panic mounted, adrenaline shot through my system, my mouth became dry, but along with this, a voice sounded inside, what I don't know, but inside, an intimate voice asked very quietly and rather jocularly, it seemed to me, considering how distraught I was, but who's minding the store? 
When I could finally focus on the question, which takes a while, hear it, I realized that though everything by which I knew myself, even my body, and thus life itself as I knew it, was, was gone, still I was fully aware. Not only that, but this aware I was watching the entire drama, including the panic, with calm compassion. Instantly, with this recognition, I felt a new kind of calmness, one of a profundity never experienced before. I had just found that I, later I called it a scanning device, a point, an essence, place where I existed independent of social and physical identity. That which was I was beyond life and death. And something else, that I knew. It really knew. It was wise rather than just knowledgeable. It was the voice inside that spoke truth. I recognized it, was one with it, and felt as if my entire life of looking to the outside world for reassurance was over. Now I need only look within to that place where I knew. Fear turned into exaltation. I ran out into the snow laughing. In a moment, the house was lost from view, but it was all right because inside I knew. At about 5.30, I walked through the silent land a few blocks my heart full to overflowing with the joy of my newfound self. At my parents' home, I felt the urge to clear the walk, as any good young tribal buck might. Happily, I set about the task. Then the upstairs window flew open, and there were my parents. Come to bed, you idiot. <laughs> Nobody shovels snow in the middle of the night. Ah, there was that external voice to which I had always listened. But what did the voice inside say? It said... It's okay to shovel snow, and it's okay to be happy. I laughed up at them, danced a bit of a jig, and returned to shovel. When I looked again, they had closed the window, and behind it, they too were smiling. Stone is a contact high. <laughs> now, the reason I read that to you at some length uh, is because I want to read you one other thing of two paragraphs, which is uh, an anticipation, a foreshadowing of chapter three of a 17-year-old middle-class high school student with no particular spiritual training. Quote, I was sitting alone in a room on the first floor of my uncle's house. I seldom had any sickness, and on that day there was nothing wrong with my health, but a sudden violent fear of death overtook me. There was nothing in my state of health to account for it. I just felt I am going to die and began thinking what to do about it. It did not occur to me to consult a doctor or my elders or friends. I felt I had to solve the problem myself, there and then. The shock of the fear of death drove my mind inwards, and I said to myself mentally, without actually forming the words, now death has come, what does it mean? What is it that is dying? This body dies, and at once I dramatized the occurrence of death. I lay with my limbs stretched out as though rigor mortis had set in, and imitated a corpse so as to give greater reality to the inquiry. I held my breath and kept my lips tightly closed so that no sound could escape, so that neither the word I nor any other word could be uttered. Well, then I said to myself, this body is dead. It will be carried stiff to the burning ground and there burnt and reduced to ashes. But with the death of the body, am I dead? Is the body I? It is silent and inert, but I feel the full force of my personality and even the voice of the I within me, apart from it, apart from the personality. So I am spirit transcending the body. 
The body dies, but the spirit that transcends it cannot be touched by death. That means that I am the deathless spirit. All this was not dull thought. It flashed through me vividly as living truth, which I perceived directly, almost without thought process. I was something very real, the only real thing about my present state, and all the conscious activity connected with my body was centered on that I. From that moment onward, the I or self focused attention on itself by a powerful fascination. Fear of death had vanished once and for all. Absorption in the self continued unbroken from that time on. Previous to that crisis, I had no clear perception of this and was not consciously attracted to it. I felt no perceptible or direct interest in it, much less any desire to dwell permanently in it. Three weeks after this experience, the fellow whose report I just read dropped out. He left home and he went to a mountain where for 50 years he remained teaching and guiding all seekers with extraordinary spiritual wisdom. His name was Ramana Maharshi. He was one of the greatest saints that India has known. Now, the difference between Ramana Maharshi and me was that I came down. I had an experience on Saturday night, and I assured myself, I have just touched living truth. I will know this forever. And by Wednesday, I was speaking of it in the past tense, talking about this great experience I had. That experience starts chapter two. For chapter two was my own quest via the method of psychedelics to, I guess you'd say, stay high. There was a lot of uh, political, social uh, activity connected with the psychedelics, which I'm sure you've all heard or read about at one point or another in various sundry scientific journals, such as Saturday Evening Post or <laughs> like that. And in the course of these explorations, I was fired from Harvard. I lost all my jobs and my parents mourned me as if I were dead. But it didn't matter because I had touched something that was so powerful that it compelled me to go on with it. I was addicted to the experience of being high. I was not addicted to the chemical, but just to the state. I had touched something so pure and so fulfilling that I had to keep going back. And I tried every method I knew to stay high. Everybody that came along with something that looked reasonably safe to ingest, I opened my mouth. I discriminated what I put in by who was giving it to me, of course. One point, a man walked into an apartment I was visiting in New York, and he was so paranoid that when he heard a news reporter was in the living room, he hid in the bathroom until the man left. And then he came out and he was wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and he was quite strange looking. And he started pulling bottles out of all of his pockets saying he thought our work was great and he wanted to give us so many grams of this and so many grams of that. And he had animal laboratories and had access to all this. And then he put out this bottle and he said, this is, um, this is an LSD, the new kind that keeps you permanently high. And he put it on the table. And we all silently looked at it. And then the question arose, how does he know? <laughs> and if he is what that is, I don't want it. <laughs> Christ has a beautiful parable to describe those days. And when the king came in to behold the guests, he saw there a man who had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, friend, how camest thou in thither not having on a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's what would happen. You could force your way in through the door into the wedding feast, but you couldn't stay there. And I kept figuring that if we could change the chemistry, we could, and then that didn't seem to be working. And then I understood that it had something to do with what I was saying a few years back, getting straight. You had to get straight. But I didn't really understand what that meant. The extent of the chemical experiments was at one point, five of us locked ourselves in a room in a house for three weeks, and we took uh, 400 micrograms of LSD every four hours for three weeks. And uh, at the end of the three weeks, we came down. Well, this chapter had gone from 1961 till the beginning of 1967. And at this point, I had to acknowledge the fact that I didn't know still. I now knew what it was that I was reaching for. I understood the possibility, but I didn't know how to get there. It wasn't that I didn't have supplies to work with, but what's the sense in taking them? Because I knew the trip. I had programmed and designed studies. I had taken a thousand micrograms of LSD standing in the ocean at midnight in the, in the Mexican, you know, with the jungle behind me and the ocean in front of me to get in tune with the forces of nature and scare the hell out of myself. <laughs> And at this point, I was going around as a lecturer talking about psychedelics. And there was no doubt that they were important and that they were showing us a possibility, but they weren't a full method, or at least we didn't know how to use them. Now, at this point, a friend of mine came along, a fellow who I had uh, guided through his first psychedelic experiences. He was an unusual fellow. He was um, about 14 and a half. He had gone to the University of Chicago at a 20, he got to wait till he was 21 to get his international law degree. At uh, 23 or 4, he was teaching in the United Nations. At 27 or 8, he started his own company, which he sold when he was 34 to uh, Xerox. For, and he became an executive, and he retired after a year and took his $5 million to become a Buddhist. It's happening faster and faster these days. And he wanted to go in search of holy men in the East. We had suspected along the way that the East, of course, was doing all of the work that we were just touching, and they knew all about these things. But many of my friends had gone to India, and they had come back saying there are many good pundits, that is, knowledgeable people, but there is nobody that seems to really know. And the frightening thought occurred, what happens if we are the people that know most in the world at this moment? That's pretty scary, because we don't know. And you certainly, there's a paternalistic thing, you know, you want somebody to know, somebody wise to be sitting there, you know, that knows. And I was kind of discouraged, because I didn't think I was going to find anything, but I didn't know what else to do. I had blown it in psychology, I had used up my psychedelic chemical possibilities as far as I could think of them. So I went off to India. We started in Iran and went looking for Sufis, and then through Afghanistan, and then... And we went on a first-class Western trip. We had a big Land Rover with a camper, a candy-striped camper top on it, bottled water and canned sardines, soft beds up on the uh, back of the car. We saw the mass of India through the windows of the Land Rover. We scored great hashish in Afghanistan, and so it was all seen through a kind of a fog of hashish. We went and we had the had darshan of the Dalai Lama, and we went to the Burning Ghats, and we went to Delhi, and we 
went to where Buddha delivered his first sermon and we did the whole trip. And I took 1,300 slides and I collected groovy musical instruments and I had many tapes of great music, but nothing had happened at all. And I had this bottle of LSD and when I'd find what seemed like holy men, I would give them an LSD and I'd, they'd talk, we'd talk about it. They'd say, well, I'd like to try it. And I'd say, well, it just so happens. <laughs> And I thought maybe they'd tell me what it was. And some of them said, uh, it gave me a headache. One old Theravadan monk, Buddhist monk. One fellow said, uh, it's good, but not as good as meditation. One fellow said, um, where can I get some more? <laughs> In general, most of the messages were messages I had received before, and I did not feel that any great light had been shed at that point. And I got to uh, Kathmandu, Nepal, and we were about to go on to Japan. And I started to experience very deep despair because that was sort of like the beginning of the journey home. And I didn't see any reason to go back. What was I going back to? I had used up everything. I had nothing new to say. I didn't know. I didn't know enough. And I was sitting in the, a hippie restaurant called the Blue Tibetan with my friend, my traveling companion. I was sitting with some French hippies. And in walked this very extraordinary looking young fellow. He was six foot seven, and he had long blonde hair and blonde beard. He was barefoot, wearing white cloth beads. Very uh, powerful being. And he came right to our table and sat down. And within about two minutes, I sensed that this fellow knew. It's interesting how when you are in the businesses I've been in, you are constantly checking out people's eyes. And I would look into their eyes and they would always be looking at me like, do you know? And I'd be saying, no, do you know? And it was like, <laughs> and there was just a feeling in this fellow that like a rock, like whatever it was, he knew it. And we took him back to the hotel and we had about a five day seminar in the hotel room on uh, hot baths and peach melbas. And we had a sculptor, an Indian sculptor, a beautiful fellow with us, the four of us, and mescaline and hashish and Alexander David Neal books and Arthur Avedon books and all of our levels. And at the end of about four or five days, it was still quite obvious to me that he knew. And the time came to go on to Japan with my friend who I'd been traveling with or continue to hang out with this guy. And this guy had no money and I had no money. And I was a little queasy about what was going on. What were my motives? What was this all about? Was it pure enough and so on? But for a variety of reasons, which I won't belabor at this moment, I decided to go with him. And we started this pilgrimage by foot. Now I am barefoot and um, experiencing extraordinary breakdown of my physical being. <laughs> uh, dysentery, uh, sleeping on the ground and on wooden tables so that all my hips are all black and blue and aching and my feet have blisters on them and I'm exhausted because all day long I'm walking behind him trying to avoid walking in cow dung and, and pond juice and people spit and I came from a very um, well toilet trained background and this was <laughs> and he was very compassionate although not having much pity and he'd say well why don't you fast for a few days you'll feel better your body will develop the bacteria, it's cool. And he started to train me in a most unusual way. 
I would say to him, um, did I ever tell you the time I was in Mexico flying? And he'd say, don't think about the past. Just be here now. How long do you suppose we're going to be on this trip? Don't think about the future. Just be here now. He said, if you can be here now, when then is now, you will have super consciousness and super energy and you will know just what to do. I'd say, boy, do I feel crummy. He'd say, emotions are like waves. Watch them disappear into the distance. I had nothing left to talk about. <laughs> so I was silent. So then we were silent, and all we did was sing Holy Son and have minimal communication about eat this, sleep there. You do this breathing exercise this way. And he was teaching me stuff all along the way and sort of cooling me out. And we visited a variety of temples and uh, had extraordinary experiences along the way, which are other chapters of the book, which we need to again do in this trip. After about three months, and I was going through a lot of mixed feelings, because after all, here I had come to India, I was a, an ex-professor, I was 35 years old, and I end up following around a 23-year-old guy from Laguna Beach. Whoever wrote the script clearly had a sense of humor. It was not that long. At the end of about three months, or a few months, a couple of months, uh, we had visa problems and we went to get our visas straight and um, we got to the small town where his visa papers were and everywhere we went, he was welcomed by all the religious people with open arms. If we went to a, a Theravadan Buddhist monastery, he would be chanting Buddhist chants and they'd all welcome him and suddenly I realized he was one of them. So I'd figure, aha, he's a Theravadan Buddhist. We'd meet a a Kajipa Lama from Tibet, and he would, they'd be talking chants of Tibet, and I would say, aha, he's a Kajipa Lama. We'd meet Shaivites, and he'd be in thick with them, and, and I couldn't figure out what his trip was. He was everything. And um, I was pretty confused. I generally thought we were Buddhists. <laughs> because it seemed relatively clean and antiseptic, and... <laughs> And the Hindu trip seemed very, um, their pictures were such, so garish, and so the whole thing was kind of gauche, I thought. <laughs> so he says, um, um, he says, you stay here, I'm going out to see about my papers. So I said, and I'm like a little child, you see, he tells me what to eat, where to sleep. He speaks Hindi and I don't very well, I just understand a little of it, and he, so it's natural that he would sort of run things, but also everything he's running. That's cool. During that night, I went out under the stars to uh, go to the bathroom. And while I was under the stars, I looked up at the heavens, which seemed particularly close, since there was no electricity in that town. And I thought about my mother, who had died the previous January in Boston at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital from a spleen. Her spleen had taken over, her bone marrow had stopped producing blood, and her spleen grew very large, and they took it out, and she died. And I wasn't thinking about how she died, I just was thinking about her because I had been with her during the period of her dying, and we had ex experienced a very high state, quite independent of our relation as parent and child or in bodies, and I had never felt any loss when she died, which quite amazed me. Even though as a psychologist I was saying, no grief reaction, watch it. 
And I thought about her, and I just thought about how close I felt to her, and then I went back to bed. I said nothing about this. And the next day, he said, um, we're going to get the Land Rover and go up into the mountains because I have to go see my guru. And he had never mentioned even having a guru. And I, didn't, I had a very funny feeling about gurus, that it was a hustle, and that maybe he meant a high teacher. And I assumed it would be somebody Buddhist, but you didn't call them gurus usually, and the whole thing was confusing. And furthermore, the Land Rover I hated now, and it hadn't been left in, for me anyway, it had been left with a sculptor, and I, I knew if we borrowed it, it would be my responsibility, and I didn't want the responsibility, and I was sort of sulking, and I was sort of hungover from all the hashish I had smoked, which I now was finished smoking. And I, uh, we got the Land Rover, which he made us take, and uh, I, he wouldn't let me drive. And I was just sitting sulking in the front seat. And we went up into the mountains about 100 miles, and we came to a little temple by the side of the road. And he stopped, and I could tell something big was going to happen because he was crying all the way up, singing and crying and coming on. And I was very angry. And I thought, oh, all this is is a young 23-year-old kid. He just wants to have a big Land Rover. <laughs> and I'm going back to America. You know, I've had enough of this. And we stop, and they, the car is surrounded, and he says, uh, where is Maharaji? means great king. And they say he's up on the hill, and he goes running off up the hill, and I, everybody's sort of ignoring me. And I'm following him, stumbling between, behind this six-foot-seven giant, you know, and he's crying and running, and I'm stumbling, and I'm angry and bugged, and I don't want to do this. And we walk around a hill so that we're out of sight of the road, and we come into a, a hillside with a valley behind it, a beautiful scene. And there is sitting a little old man with a blanket, and he's surrounded by about eight or nine Indians. And this tall fellow is stretched out flat in what's called Dunder Pranam with his hands touching the feet of this man. And he's crying, and the man's patting his head and smiling. And I take a look at the scene, and it's quite beautiful, but I'm too bugged to really appreciate it. And I think, well, I'm not going to touch his feet. I mean, you know, we don't do that in the West. So I sort of stood back, figuring, well, I can just be an observer. I'm just a passenger in the car. I don't have to do it. Hmm. After a little while, um, this old man pulled his hair and he said to him, have you got a picture of me? And the, man, the boy said, yeah. And he said, well, give it to him. So I thought, gee, that's very nice, you know. This little old man's going to give me a picture of himself. <laughs> and I smiled. Thank you very much, you know. See, there was a, a guy who would translate. The school principal was one of the eight people. And he would sort of say everything in English after it was said. Then he looked up at me, and I was still, like, very uptight. He looked up at me, and he said, uh, you came in a big car? Hmm. Like the one topic, see, that I'm uptight about. So I said, yeah. He said, you'll give it to me? So I started to say, well, and this young fellow said, Maharaji, if you want it, it's yours. And I said, now, wait a minute. You can't go giving away David's car. It's not our car to give away. This little old man says to me, you made much money in America? So I said, uh, yeah, one time I made. He said, how much did you make? So I was into bragging. My, you know, I needed something for my ego. I said, well, one year I made $25,000. So they all figured that out in rupees, and everybody was impressed. It's like 60 billion rupees or something like that. <laughs>
So he said, you'll buy a car like that for me? Now, I grew up in a family that was very involved with Jewish charities, and I knew about uh, getting money, but I had never been hustled so fast in my life. I didn't even know who he was, and he was already asking me for a $7,000 car. And he's smiling at me all the time. And he's putting me on. That's really what it boils down to. So I say, well, perhaps. And then he says, take them away, give them food. And we're taken off and given food. And a big sumptuous feast. At the end of the feast, we rest, and then we're brought back to him. And he says, uh, come sit, sit. So I go and sit down. He said, um, you were out under the stars last night. You were thinking about your mother. Yeah. She died last year. Mm. Closed his eyes for a second. And says, she got very big in the stomach before she died. Yeah, says um, spleen. She died of spleen. When he said that, two things happened to me. One was that my mind raced faster and faster and faster through every conceivable CIA super paranoia I could conceive of <laughs> to figure out what was happening to me. I mean, who was putting me on? Like, had they brought me here? Was this some monstrous training program? That, and I, a dossier was spread behind this little man. He pushed a button and, the, you know, the ground opened up. And, and like, that's very far out because even the guy I was traveling with didn't know that stuff. And I was just a passenger in the car. You know, boy, they're really good at big game. And I went through, like, how, what are the probabilities, you see? Because, see, I, in the past, I was in this position that when things like this happened, they didn't happen to me usually, they happened to somebody else, and I said, well, that's nice. You certainly have to keep an open mind about those things. And, <laughs> and when it did happen to me, I was always out of my head on psychedelics, and I, how did I know it had happened that I hadn't just created the whole thing out of whole cloth? because I had taken some psychedelics that did that kind of thing. I had taken, I remember taking a thing called JB318. And um, I was sitting in a, in a room and nothing was happening. And I thought, gee, this is nothing much happens with this drug, does it? Even though the fellow I took it with, who was about 50, was doing cartwheels through the room. <laughs> but I felt nothing. And then this girl from the community I was living in walked in and she said, um, would you like some lemonade? And I said, that would be great. And she poured this glass of lemonade and it got to the top and she kept pouring and it went over the side and down the side and across the wall and up the wall and across the ceiling and down and under my pants. And then it went back up and my pants got wet and I moved and then it went back up and as it touched the glass, the glass disappeared and the girl disappeared and the, my wet pants were no longer wet. And I turned to Ralph Metzner who was sitting next to me and I said, Ralph, you know, the most unusual thing just happened to me. And Ralph disappeared. <laughs> and thus, the, uh, I was perfectly willing when the people at Harvard said, you people have been uh, uh, taking these drugs. You are therefore not reputable scientists anymore as observers. And I was perfectly delighted to say, I will be data. You know, study me, and it may be it's too bad what happened to those guys in the 60s at Harvard, you know. 
So my mind went faster and faster and faster, and then it went through every desperate ploy and, and search through all the storage units. And then just like a computer that has been fed an insoluble problem, finally, so the machine doesn't burn out entirely, a red light goes on and a bell rings, and the machine stops. And that is what happened. My mind just gave up. And simultaneously, and this was not, I couldn't experience it as cause and effect. All I experienced it was the simultaneity of I mean, He was looking right at me and sort of uh, just looking right at me. I felt this very violent tugging sensation in my chest. It was very painful. And uh, I started to cry. And I cried and I cried and I cried. And I wasn't happy and I wasn't sad. The closest I can come to description of feelings was like I'm home or it's over or or it's all right, or wow, that kind of thing. Cried and cried and cried, and they took me away. And I was taken to a temple about 12 miles away, and I was given a nice room, and I was sitting in the room, and during the evening, I was very confused, and at one point, I was going through my shoulder bag, and I came to a, the bottle of LSD. I thought, this guy is going to know what LSD is, because he knows everything. I'll have to ask him. Next morning at 8 o'clock, messenger comes, Maharaji wants to see you, we go over the 12 miles to the temple. I'm just approaching him about five, six yards away from him. And he yells out, have you got a question? And I take one look at him, and all I want to do is touch his feet. <laughs> I don't have any question. It's so warm and beautiful, and there's so much light coming out of him. And I say, no, I don't have any question. And he said, he gets very impatient. And he says, um, where's the Medicine? Medicine? So Guru Brother says, well, maybe he means the LSD. I said, LSD, Acha, the LSD, bring the LSD. So I go and I bring the bottle of LSD. He holds, I hold out my hand, he wants to see. So I hold out my hand and pour it in. He says, well, what's that? And I said, well, that's LSD. And so that's STP and that's Librium, it's two and all. And you know, it's my traveling kit. <laughs> in those days, I hasten to add for the benefit of the people whose business it is to protect us from those kind of traveling kids. And he says, does it give you Siddhis? And I didn't know what the word Siddhis meant. And I said Siddhis, and it was translated as powers to me. And I didn't realize it was spiritual powers. I thought he was asking for physical power. I thought he wanted something like vitamin B12. And I didn't have anything like that. And I was really depressed because I really wanted to give him whatever he wanted. I mean, I would have given him anything at that point. He could have the land road if he wanted. <sighs> So I said, gee, I'm sorry, I don't have that. And I put it back into the bottle and I was very sad. No, oh, no, no, and he holds out his hand. So I put one pill in his hand and these are, uh, these are called white lightning and they were um, about 275 micrograms of LSD, but these were a special batch that had been made for me as a going away present and they were each 305 micrograms. Uh, he looked and he, come on, come on. So I put a second on his hand, that was 610 micrograms. For a 70-year-old man, you usually, you know, like 150 under suitable conditions. Can't be too careful. I don't know about the heart. And he looks and says, come on, come on. So I put a third one. That's 915. That's going to do it. I mean, it's good. Well, it's good. And he looks, uh, and he downs the whole business. And the scientist in me says, uh, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and all day I hung around, and every now and then he'd twinkle at me. And of course, nothing happened. 
at all. Mm. So that was the answer to that question. He continued to manifest these, what we in the West call miracles, certainly the, the capacity to uh, know everything I was thinking at all times. And lest ye see wonders and miracles, ye will not believe. And that certainly was helping. But it was only a more trivial part of the whole undertaking, it turned out. I never left the temple. I just stayed there. They took me over. They didn't ask me if I wanted to stay. There were no contracts, no promises, no anything. They just bought my clothes and put me in a room. And I met this man who then became my teacher, who was a disciple of the gurus. No place to hide. My teacher had gone into the jungle when he was eight years old. Fifteen years ago, he had met the guru in the jungle. They were both called jungle sadhus. That is, they lived in caves way back in the forest. They didn't have any commerce with people. And they, he was a very pure Brahmin teacher. He weighs about 90 pounds. He's very tiny. He's a very unusual fellow. He's got his jetta piled high. His hair goes all the way down his ankles. But it's all kept piled in his head. He moves incredibly fast. He's always rushing around. He has architecturally designed. See, what happens is this guru, who is just this little old man in a blanket, he just hangs out, see? And he sort of just hangs out. He doesn't do anything except just talk to people and people feed him. Right? And he just does his thing in a very subtle way. And, every, and, and they, the, the devotees like having him around so much because he's so high that they sort of guard him. <laughs> Because if they let him go, he'd sort of walk off and maybe nobody would see him again. And they have a car for him and he just keeps disappearing here and there with the car and goes different places. And everywhere he goes, people rush up to touch his feet and be around him. And then all these people bring him money and gifts and stuff and he doesn't have any use for that. He's got no game going. So then these people who bring him the gifts, they set up foundations to take care of the gifts. And then they say to him, Maharaji, what should we do? And he comes and he points to a place and says, love a temple because a great saint had lived in that cave, we'll build a temple in the cave. And this teacher designs all of them. He architecturally designs them, supervised the building, ran the temples and the schools and the whole business. He taught me, he reads and writes, he's silent. He's been silent for 15 years. He reads and writes six or eight languages. He has many followers of his own. His food intake for 15 years, and I lived with him and I saw what he was taking. His food intake for 15 years was two glasses of milk a day. That's it. That's it. He is a scrupulously honest, perfect guy. He is not, uh, you wouldn't consider him a realized being. He's caught in what's called the golden chain, the sattvic chain, the chain of being pure. He's being good. And he taught me, he taught me everything and he taught me so subtly. He taught me so subtly that I never knew I was being taught anything. He would walk in and I into my room where I was alone most of the time. I ate alone, I lived alone, and I was left very much with my thoughts, right on the edge of freaking out all the time. And he'd walk in and he'd write on the slate, if you wear shoe leather, the whole earth is covered with leather. And then he'd walk out. Then if you hadn't gotten that message, he felt you hadn't gotten that message, he'd send you another one. He'd say, if a pickpocket meets a saint, He'd write, he sees only his pockets. And he'd leave for the day. And it was only later that I realized that he had taught me a very, very exquisitely articulated system that is um, 
several thousand years old at least, which is called uh, Patanjali's system of Ashtanga yoga or eight limb yoga. It's also sometimes known as Raja yoga. Because I never thought he was teaching me anything. I thought we were just hanging out and he was saying these like groovy things on his chalkboard. And he never gave me the feeling that he was saying anything to me that was new. It was all, sure, of course, you know, right, that's the way it is. The yoga consists of eight limbs. The first two limbs are purification. The third limb concerns the body, asanas, which you sometimes know of as hatha yoga. The fourth limb concerns pranayama, or control of pran, or life force or energy through breath control. And the fifth through the eighth concern methods of controlling the mind. And all I can say to you is, as a reasonably competent social scientist, I have never yet seen such an exquisitely articulated system as that. And furthermore, I would say to you that it works. The schedule, the life I led in the temple, very simply, was I'd get up around 4.30 in the morning. I would go to the river to take my bath with a lota pouring water over me, barefoot through the snow, rush back to the huddle by my coal brazier, do breath pranayam, do asanas, do meditation, take tea in the morning, meditate in the morning and read holy books. He would come and teach me around 11, then I would do more asanas, breathing, then I would take my meal for the day alone, then I would rest and have fantasies of being somewhere else, like on the Riviera, lying in the sun with a beautiful girl feeding me grapes. And then I would uh, study some more or read or write. And then people would come and sing holy songs. And then I would do breathing again and then asanas again and then meditation. And I'd take some warm milk and I'd go to bed. And every now and then I'd be invited to go see Maharaji, the guru. And my life was had that sameness about it, very simple, very austere, very delightful, very content, content. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.